Dearly Father, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the truths that we find in it. Lord, I thank you for this study that we've been doing in Genesis. Thank you for this passage that we've studied this week and how much we've learned. And thank you for our time together that we were able to share everything that we learned this week. Lord, help us to hear from you and you only today. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So... Throughout history, people have discounted the biblical account of the flood. Some claim it was only a local flood, while others believe it never even took place. Today, as we review our lesson, I pray that we see how critical it is for us to believe this passage exactly how the Bible says it occurred. If the flood did not happen, or if it was not exactly how the Bible describes then the New Testament scriptures that refer to the flood can also be discredited, and there would no longer be any concern for a future global judgment of sin. It is for this reason that it is essential to believe in the account of the flood as it is recorded for us here in God's Word. The Bible should be our starting point, yet when discussing the veracity of the biblical account, there are two main types of evidence that people observe, history and science. So what do history and science tell us about whether a worldwide flood occurred? From a historical standpoint, there is evidence of a flood being handed down throughout the generations. In a sermon on these chapters of Genesis, John MacArthur states that there are over 270 different tribes and nations that have a flood story in their tradition. And he quoted Hugh Miller, who had investigated these stories in the 1800s, where Hugh stated, quote, the destruction of well-nigh the whole human race in an early age of the world's history by a great deluge appears to have so impressed the minds of the few survivors and seems to have been handed down to their children in consequence with such terror-struck impressiveness that their remote descendants of the present day have not even yet forgotten it. It appears in almost every mythology and lives in the most distant countries and among the most barbarous tribes. End of quote. In a book entitled The Genesis Flood, Continents and Collision, Dennis Gordon Lindsay explains how the passing down of this story through generations is possible when he states, according to Bible chronology, Noah's son Shem was still living during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was born 450 years after the flood. Shem died 500 years after it. Undoubtedly, the various cultures of the earth learned about the great flood before they were dispersed. This scattering occurred after the construction of the Tower of Babel, which occurred within a century after the flood. The various people groups took with them the story of the flood as they spread throughout the world. We not only have the evidence of this tradition being passed on throughout history, we also have scientific evidence that points to a worldwide flood. While preparing for this lecture, I spent a lot of time reading what science reveals about the evidence that has been uncovered. And what I realized after all this reading that I did was, I'm not a scientist. (laughs) I do believe that Answers in Genesis is a great resource for anyone who enjoys looking at the scientific evidence and seeing how it supports the Bible. In an article entitled Geologic Evidences for the Genesis Flood, geologist and author Dr. Andrew Snelling gives six evidences for the global flood. I highly recommend this for anyone who is interested in discovering more about how science does line up with scripture. 
The fact that there have been fossils of marine life discovered on mountaintops was enough to convince me that a worldwide flood occurred. In order for the waters to reach a level of the mountaintops, it had to be a worldwide flood instead of a local one, as some would claim. If it had been a local flood, the waters would have been dispersed differently and would not have risen as they did to provide the evidence we find on mountaintops. Ladies, we do have history and science that both provide support for a worldwide flood, but we have something greater than these. We have God's word. We should believe God's word is true. We should believe that if God said it occurred in a particular way, then it did. We either believe the whole canon of scripture or we don't. We cannot take one portion of scripture out or say it's not accurate and then expect that the rest of scripture to be true. We have evidence throughout both the Old and the New Testament that a worldwide flood occurred. One verse where we see this is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter was speaking of the flood as destroying the world. He wrote of it in a manner assuming that his readers also believed it had occurred. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Today, as we think about this portion of scripture in Genesis 7 and 8, may we see how vitally important it is for us to believe all of what we read so that we can have a true picture of our God and the whole canon of scripture. We began our study in Genesis with God creating the world. And today, we come to this portion of Scripture, which is about 1,650 years after creation, where God destroys his creation. This passage that we have studied this week gives a picture of God that many have a difficult time grasping. Many people cannot understand the total devastation that this worldwide flood brought. Why would a loving God destroy everything? If God is loving and kind, why would he destroy the very creation that he proclaimed good in chapter 1? Our answer to this began in chapter 3 with the fall of man and sin entering the world. Then we learned in chapter 6 that the wickedness of man was great and every intention of man's heart was evil. And because of this, God said he would blot out man. God was grieved over the sin of man. And because he is righteous and just, he cannot overlook sin. God's wrath is his righteous judgment on man for his sin. Our holy God is just and righteous and merciful and loving. All of his attributes work in perfect harmony with one another. One author put it this way, God's love encompasses holiness and righteousness as well as justice. If God failed to exercise judgment, he would cease being a just God. If he ceased being a just God, he would cease being a righteous God. If he ceased being a righteous God, he would cease being a holy God. If he were not holy, he would no longer be a God of love. His love is seen through his saving grace bestowed on the remnant. Noah found favor in God's eyes. Noah built the ark, just as God instructed, took the animals and his family, and God shut the door. We ended last week with God shutting Noah, 
his family, and the animals in the ark. We begin this week with the view of 40 days of rain and of waters rising in the devastation of this worldwide flood. In the first four verses of this section, we read how the waters prevailed. Verse 17 of chapter 7, the waters increased and bore up the ark. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. Verse 19, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So the picture we have been given is the waters rising and rising and covering and prevailing over the highest mountain at that time by over 22 feet. This is very different than the image that comes to my mind when I first think of the flood. I see a cute little boat floating on the water, packed with animals with a little rainbow behind them, much like what we would show a Sunday school class of kids when we're telling them the story from the Bible. We may also have a picture in our head similar to what we see in news reports of local floods. Some of the worst local floods that I've seen pictures of show pictures of cars being swept away from the rushing waters and people on the rooftops waiting to be rescued. I looked up the history of the worst floods, and the devastation was staggering. A flood that was listed as one of the worst occurred in China in 1931. One website described the flood as follows. In 1931, China experienced arguably the most lethal flood in history. Rivers throughout the country rose onto their plains, inundating an area the size of England and half of Scotland combined. Around a tenth of the Chinese population was affected. Well, ladies, we know there was one historical flood that was more lethal than this. God's word gives us a picture of the devastation of the worldwide flood in the days of Noah. We know it was worldwide because that's what God's word says. This was not a local flood, as some people would claim. The flood we have record of in the Bible was worse than any flood we have ever seen in news reports. This flood covered the highest mountain over 20 feet. The pictures that we see in, news, in the news of local floods all have aerial views. I know you've probably seen an aerial view of a flood. Well, you're able to see some visible landmarks with those aerial views. If there was an aerial shot of this flood that we studied today, there would be nothing to see except the ark floating on the waters and the devastation that may have also been floating. That's it. No landmarks, no living people, nothing. Just one ark and a world of water. That is what the Bible tells us in verse 17 and 18. As the waters rose, they bore up the ark, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Nothing to see but water and the ark, and most likely evidences of the death and destruction that occurred. In the next verses, we see the totality of devastation caused by these prevailing waters. Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Verse 22, everything on dry ground in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. 
So what we have is a cataclysmic flood where the waters prevailed over the earth and everything that Noah and his family knew of the earth was destroyed. We learn in the last verse of chapter 7 that the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. That is approximately five months of water prevailing over the earth. I don't know about you, but I usually only think about it raining for 40 days and 40 nights. It's true that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but the water prevailed over the earth for 150 days, wiping out all living creatures that roamed the land. Answers in Genesis describes what may have occurred as follows. Noah's flood was much more destructive than any 40-day rainstorm ever could be. Scripture says that the fountains of the great deep broke open. In other words, earthquakes, volcanoes, and geysers of molten lava and scalding water were squeezed out of the earth's crust in a violent, explosive upheaval. These fountains were not stopped until 150 days into the flood. So the earth was literally churning underneath the waters for about five months. We can read about this in Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9. And it will give us a little bit more biblical insight into what may have occurred, what occurred. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. This biblical description of the flood gives insight to the destruction that occurred when all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were open. While the waters were prevailing over the earth and everything was blotted out, the mountains began to rise and the valleys to sink. The whole earth was transformed by this deluge of water. This is how we have fossils of marine life discovered on mountaintops. This is how we have... This is why we have evidence of fossil graveyards found in rock layers around the world. This is why every continent contains layers of sedimentary rock that span vast areas. This is why we find layers of thick sandstone around the earth. This is why we find evidence of rapid erosion or even no erosion between rock layers, not millions of years of erosion. God and his power over all creation opened the floodgates and caused this worldwide devastation in order to blot out all living things. It was not a fraction of the earth or a portion of the earth. It was the whole earth, complete and utter ruin of the whole earth. Only Noah and those on the ark with him were saved. God did what he said he would do in chapter 6, verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. After reading this section of scripture describing the Lord blotting out all living things that roam the earth, we should have a clear understanding of God's holy wrath, a picture of his righteous judgment on mankind for their sins. This should cause us to pause And think about our holy God. We should tremble at his power and might when we see the total devastation and destruction caused by his wrath. As stated in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But there's more to see about God in this passage. Next, 
We read it, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. Chapter 8 begins with the words we love to hear, but God. God remembered Noah and all of those who were on the ark with him. In the midst of God's holy wrath, his judgment on sin, God in his mercy and grace remembers Noah and begins to allow the waters to abate by causing a wind to blow and begin to dry up the land while also closing the fountains of the deep. Just as he opened the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven to begin the flood, God now closes these to allow the water to recede and dry up. This flood was an act of God from the beginning to the end. In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, the rains began. For 40 days and nights, the rain fell and water prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Noah and his ark companions have been floating for five months when finally they land. Genesis 8:4. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. We're told the ark came to rest on the mountains, and it wasn't until the first day of the 10th month that the tops of the mountains were seen. The ark lands, then two and a half months go by before they can see mountaintops, and after another 40 days, Noah sends out a raven. When I was studying this, all I could think of was how patient Noah was. Joe and I like to go on cruises, and the first cruise that we took out of Tampa was on a small ship, and there was a pretty bad storm that occurred. It was bad enough that the ship had bags strategically placed throughout for those who were not handling the ship rocking very well with the weather. When the cruise was over, many people were very happy to set their feet on dry ground and not be on that boat anymore. We were only on that ship for one weekend. I thought of this in light of this passage and how patient Noah was to wait and be sure the time was right for his family to get off the ark. They had been in a cataclysmic storm and endured something we can't even imagine. And they finally land. And instead of rushing to set foot on dry ground, Noah waited for the Lord to tell him to exit. He waited for the Lord. We should learn from Noah to be patient and wait for God's perfect timing and his power to accomplish his plans instead of rushing ahead and trying to do things in our own strength and timing and following our own plans. It was at this time that Noah opened the ark window and released birds to help him determine how dry the land was. Noah released a raven first, and we're told that this bird went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Next, Noah sends out a dove on three different occasions with seven days in between each release. After the, release, after the first release, the dove returns to him. The second time, the dove returns with a freshly picked olive branch, and after the third time, the dove does not return, which tells Noah that the dove found enough food to survive on its own. Finally, after all of this time on the ark, Noah knows the land is dry and sufficient for living. In verse 13, we read, In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the, dry, the ground was dry. I didn't notice it before, but Noah doesn't leave at this moment. Again, he waits. It wasn't until 56 days after Noah removed the covering that God spoke to Noah. 
and told him to leave. In the second month, on the 27th day, Noah and those with him in the ark finally exit the ark. They have been inside the ark for a little over one year. Makes me think about how so many of us complained about the stay-at-home mandates during COVID and how difficult it was for us to be inside our houses, away from everyone except our immediate family members. We really didn't have it as bad as Noah and those on the ark. We were still able to leave our house for what were considered essential activities. Imagine if you had to stay locked up in an ark full of animals for over one year. The smell alone would have been enough to drive me crazy. So at last, after being together for so long, the Lord instructs every living creature that is on the ark to leave and to be fruitful and multiply. Just as he had done in chapter one, after creating all living creatures, God repeats his blessing to this remnant and instructs them to be fruitful and multiply. Imagine finally stepping foot on dry ground and what must have been going through Noah's mind. I'm in awe when I read his first action when he exits. Genesis 8:20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah built an altar and he worshiped the Lord. Noah must have felt immense gratitude as he realizes the magnitude of this flood and he understands the only reason he's standing on solid ground is because of God's grace and mercy toward him. The earth, as Noah and his family knew it, no longer existed. Everything was destroyed and altered as a result of what occurred over the course of the last year. And Noah had the only appropriate response. He built an altar and he worshiped the Lord. We know this was an appropriate response because we read in Genesis 8:21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. God, in his infinite grace and mercy, has determined in his heart to never destroy mankind in this manner again. God acknowledges that mankind is fully deserving of his divine judgment because the intention of man's heart is sinful from his youth. God's grace is bestowed on undeserving man as he determines in his heart never to destroy all of life through a flood again, but instead he will allow life to go on, as we see in verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In today's passage we have what appear to be opposing attributes of our God on display. We see his holy wrath and righteous judgment of sin, sin and the complete and utter destruction of the world through the flood. We also see his infinite mercy and grace through saving a remnant and vowing to himself to never blot out every living creature through a devastating flood again. Understanding our God as both a God of wrath and a God of mercy is paramount. In order to follow the Lord and call others to do the same, we need to have this complete view of God. We need to see his wrath and his judgment on sin to comprehend what it is we are being saved from. Ladies, God has promised he will not destroy the earth with a flood again, but we know from 2 Peter 3, 7 that the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. We also know of God's eternal judgment on sin from 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9. 
in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Can I challenge each of us today? We should be living in these last days like Noah. We know of a future judgment on sin. God's word tells us that in the verses that I just read and many others. We know we serve a God who cannot let sin go unpunished. Just like Noah, we have been warned by God of a future judgment. Can we be just like Noah in our faith? Can we have faith like Noah? Praise the Lord that we don't have to build an ark to be saved from the coming storm of judgment. God has made a way for us through his son, Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't. And by his death for our sins, we have been, by his death, our sins have been paid for. And through our faith in him and him alone, we can be saved from the future wrath of God. For those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus as our savior, we have that promise. We should be like Noah and fall on our knees and worship God out of hearts of thankfulness for saving us from the wrath to come. If you have not placed your trust in Jesus, then I beg you to do so today. Jesus will come again. And speaking of his return, in Matthew 24, verse 37, Jesus says, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of man be. It is critical for us to believe what the scriptures say about the flood, because if we don't, then how can we believe what Jesus says here about his return and what other scriptures say about the future judgment? Christ will return and God will judge the world. We have a picture here of God's total control over his creation, his awesome power to destroy and wipe out every living thing on earth, and his love and mercy to save those who have faith in him. We know that was what was written before was written for our learning. We know from Matthew 24 and 2 Peter that this passage in Genesis is given as a warning of what is to come. In Matthew, Christ is telling his disciples what it will be like when he returns. Everything is going to be going on just like normal, just like every other day. When Jesus returns, he will save those who have faith, but those without will be destroyed just like in Noah's day. God promised never to destroy the whole earth with a flood again, but we know that it will be destroyed and he will destroy it with fire. One of my sisters lost her house in Hurricane Andrew in the 1990s. She came home to see her roof in her neighbor's yard and her house was flooded. Afterwards, I was talking with her about it. She said the only thing that she could imagine to be worse than the floodwaters of the hurricane would be fire. We do not know when this future judgment will occur, but we know it will happen when life is going on just like normal, just like the days of Noah. If you have not repented and turned to the Lord, then don't wait. May this knowledge and this study of the worldwide destruction on sin in Noah's day cause us to have faith like Noah so that we all live holy, obedient lives and become heralds of righteousness by warning others of this coming judgment and directing them to salvation in Christ Jesus, who is our ark of escape from God's holy wrath. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you for this picture of your wrath and your mercy. 
Lord, I thank you for your warning to us about the future. Lord, I ask that you would help each and every one of us to go from today with hearts that desire to live holy and obedient lives to you. We love you and praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.